I like movies, and one of my favorite movies is The Matrix. And there's a, a dramatic scene when the character Neo rescues Trinity off the helicopter. You know, the helicopter's about to crash, and he does an amazing feat to save her. And the character, the operator, says, he's the one. And that's a memorable scene for me because that word one just has so much significance. Now I'm going to ask another question for all of us to kind of ponder. Have you ever fallen in love? Have you ever fallen in love with the one? Well, it was about 25 years ago, over 25 years ago, that, that I met the one. And I, I met Terry, my wife, at a friend's wedding down in Southern California, of all places. So we, we met at, at his wedding, and in about 25 years later, we got married ourselves. So I figured out from that first moment that she would be the one. Now also, over 25 years ago, I also fell in love with a church. And that church was Christian Layman Church. And I also made CLC the one. You know, the, in the Bible, the Bible describes marriage as, as a man and a woman who leave their parents and become one. And, and that's a very powerful image about the oneness in marriage, about two individuals becoming one. And these two individuals are distinctly different, but they are also equal, but they become one through, through marriage. Now, those of us who are married know that it's not very easy to maintain that oneness, right? With the differences that we have, conflict does come up, but the goal is to continue to try to maintain that oneness. And it takes constant work, mutual submission to be able to do that. Now God also uses that powerful image of one for the church. He uses that, that image in the relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church. Where Jesus is the groom and the church is his bride. And also in the analogy of the body that Jesus is the head and the church is his body, symbolizing that oneness that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ. God has a plan to restore the world, and he chooses to use individuals like you and me, just ordinary people, not just by ourselves, though, but he wants to use us as a community, as a collective, in demonstrating to the world what it means to be one, to have this unity. And he wants this unity to be something that is distinctly different than the world sees. So that they will ask questions. That they would demand an explanation for the lives that we live. And so how can we do this? How can we show the, wor show the world that we are different and have something to offer? We can only do this when we know what it means to live as one. To be united in Christ. And so if we have our Bibles, I'd like us to turn to the book of Ephesians. Again, this morning we're going to go through a particular section there where the Apostle Paul will begin to tell us what it means for the church to be unified, to live as one. Starting with chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up to him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And that's the word of the Lord. Earlier, or a few months ago, our uh, staff team went to a, a leadership conference. And at that conference, the speaker was telling us about values, about the importance of values. The number one force that shapes our culture is our values. What we value determines what we do. Now, a value is defined as a principle or standard that's considered worthwhile. Uh, it's a quality that's desirable. If we desire to seek after God, if we choose to follow Jesus Christ, it is imperative for us to align our values with God's values. And it's clearly stated here that God highly values unity. And we see this in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How are we to accomplish this? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul gives us five character qualities that are needed for unity. Humility, gentleness, patience, understanding, and love. The first quality, humility. Well, just to give you kind of a contextualized significance of this, is that back in the early church days, in the Greek culture, humility was considered a vice. Only slaves practiced humility. And here, Paul lists the first quality that helps uh, promote unity is humility. And pride is the opposite of humility. Pride creates disunity, but humility helps promote unity. The second quality is gentleness or meekness. And being gentle or meek doesn't mean being weak. It's actually having power under control. It's self-control. Um, gentleness is the opposite of rudeness, self-assertion, or harshness. The third quality is patience. And patience means never giving up even in the face of adversity. It means having self-restraint, not to quickly retaliate when one is wronged. And finally, the last two qualities, understanding and love, means to bear with one another, to empathize and try to understand the other person. It's not thinking about oneself, but looking out for the good of others. As Christians, we are commanded to love one another like ourselves. 
Paul continues in verses 4 through 6 to describe unity of the church uh, by seven elements. In verse 4 to 6, the verses read, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And whenever we study the scripture, whenever we see words that are repeated over and over again, those are words that would have major significance and is something we should pay attention to. And here there are two words that are repeated over and over again. The first one being the word one, and it's repeated seven times. And if you are familiar with the number seven in biblical times, seven represents wholeness or perfection. Back in the, in the Genesis story, right, about uh, creation, there are seven days of creation, and seven represents wholeness or completeness. And here we have seven elements that describe the unity of the church. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And it's most important to observe here that among these seven elements, there is the center foundational uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Spirit, Lord, God the Father. And the Trinity in itself has the oneness in relationships among the three persons. And this is foundational to the unity of the church. The other elements that we see here are the body, hope, faith, and baptism. Body being the universal church, the hope that we have with God in our future, and the faith means uh, having uh, belief and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the baptism which is a common identification that all Christians have with Jesus. And just to understand the significance of this, this is one of the things that externally identifies someone with Jesus Christ. Remember, baptism is a public uh, display of our commitment to an internal change. And the other night, uh, last night, I was uh, coming back home uh, after seeing a movie, and when I was driving back home, I saw these narrowing of narrowing of lights in the roadway, and apparently there was these uh, pylons being set up to change three lanes into one, and it was like kind of gauntlet. And once you were in there, you couldn't turn around. And I quickly realized that the local police was uh, setting up a sobriety checkpoint. And here, going through, I had to have. Uh, my driver's license, which is my ID card to identify who I was and that I was legal to drive a car. And that driver's license is one way that we identify ourselves as who we are. And back in that day, baptism was a way that Christians identified that they were Christians. And they did this as a public ceremony that people in the church, when they saw someone get dunked in the water, they knew that they were committing themselves to the faith. But on the flip side, it was also an identifier to those who were enemies of the church because then they knew who was going to be siding with the Christian church and they would then um, be subject to any persecution or any... Um, backlash for their commitment for being uh, a Christian. So baptism, again, is an identifier 
of our Christian faith to others in the world. The second word that is repeated over and over again is the word all, and is repeated four times. And I just want to make an important note here that the word all does not refer to mankind in general, but to, to believers only. It is an inclusive word, but it's not inclusive of all mankind, just to believers. But still, it is a significant statement being made here by Paul. You have to remember, back in the day, there were some real conflicts developing in the church, and even on animosity between various groups, whether it was uh, over race issues with the Jews uh, and the Gentiles, uh, or gender issues with men and women, parents and children, slaves and masters. And matter of fact, Paul will be addressing some of these issues and how we are to behave towards one another later in, in the book of Ephesians. Now, to emphasize all being inclusive was a very radical statement for Paul to be making here because Paul, being a Jew, is speaking to a Gentile church uh, at Ephesus. And for him to say all, meaning you're all included in the new Christian faith, that was such an encouragement to, to the Gentiles. Well, for us today, it's the same thing. No matter how different the world says you are, no matter how you feel about yourself, God says you are welcome in his family. And all who confess that Jesus is the Christ can be forgiven and be given the greatest gift of all of eternal life for committing oneself to following Jesus, the Son of God. Unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean sameness. God created us all unique and different. Now, take a moment. I want you to look to your left, look to the right, look at the person in front of you, look at the person behind you. Just take a close look and realize, right, that you are all different, that you're not the same, yet you are all God's workmanship. Matter of fact, why don't you go ahead and tell your neighbor you're a piece of work. We have differences in gender, race, culture, personality, and abilities. We are different in social, economic status, education, age, and marriage marriage status. If we were all the same, that would be really boring. Yet differences in each one of us can create misunderstanding and conflict and take into its extremes even hatred. And we often see this in our daily life experiences. I know at least in my experiences. It actually surprised me. I had a chance to to um, meet up and have a dinner with a with a pre-health club uh, kind of small group in Berkeley. And, and during our dinner conversation, which perked my ears, because I, you know, I would think that these things don't happen anymore. When I was growing up in the 60s and the 70s, you, we of uh, Asian descent experienced some, uh, some of the racial biases. But I was surprised to hear it still happens today. Uh, and maybe more subtle tones. But the, the students were sharing that they went wine tasting. And uh, during the wine tasting, one of the uh, persons that was serving them the wine was saying, yeah, this wine is really good with Asian food. You people know a lot about that, don't you? 
And, and just by that comment, that was a really subtle way of pointing out the differences of our ethnicity and assuming just because of the color of our skin that we would have certain knowledge about something, right? Here in a particular case of a particular cuisine. But that is in some ways a very subtle way of, of these differences that crop up and some of the uh, ignorance that some people have in making statements like that. But in more dramatic way, even as a person of Asian American descent, I cannot under, uh, even appreciate or understand some of my African American brothers and sisters and what they have to go through. Uh, I played basketball Friday nights with uh, an Asian group of guys and women too. And, and it's, we have a closed game. And so generally when we play, a lot of times, sometimes the street people come in and, and the, the caretakers of the gym will try to keep, keep folks that are not supposed to be there out of there. And we were playing one night and part of our, our group is actually an African-American family. They're actually Christian and they're, they're a really cool bunch of guys. Most respectful, um, most uh, honorable kind of people. And uh, they have a son who's about 22 years old, and he came into the gym one night to play, and the caretaker looked at him just by the color of his skin and said, hey, are you supposed to be here? And, and you know, all of us were playing and warming up, and it just kind of was embarrassing for us to hear that, but we had to stop and turn and go to his defense and say, yeah, he's part of our group. But again, just because of the color of his skin, Entering into a, to a gym where the assumption was he wasn't supposed to be there was something that was eye-opening, that these differences can cause such a reaction of trying to exclude them from, from another group. Unfortunately, the church is no different, but we must be different. God created us with differences and he unites us in the church by giving us a common calling and purpose that our unity would demonstrate God's plan to restore the world. In verse 12 and 13, part of that calling is for God's people to do works of service so that a body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God achieved this plan by giving us different gifts. He gives us different gifts to his followers. And we see this in verse 7. But to each one of his grace has been given us as Christ apportioned it. And these spiritual gifts that are mentioned here, these gifts are actually gifts that are doled out to every Christian who becomes, as soon as they become a follower of Jesus Christ, they get gifts from the Holy Spirit. Total discretion and discernment of the Holy Spirit to give to everybody at least one spiritual gift. And here listed are some, some gifts, specifically apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And these are usually known as leadership gifts. But they're just one of many uh, uh, spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives out to, to Christians. So everybody here who has made that commitment to follow Jesus, you've been given a gift. And these are not just your normal human abilities or, or giftedness. These are special gifts that, that come with a spiritual ramification. And these gifts are not to be used for our own gain, for our own personal individual gains. These gifts are doled out so that it would benefit the church. 
the church body to help glorify God. There, there is no, don't usually, sometimes some of these gifts actually have a personal cost for some of us to exercise them. But they are for the benefit of the church as whole. The leadership gifts that are mentioned here in these verses are, as I said, leadership gifts. And they are said to be gifts that are to, to help equip the people of the church for service, for works of service. And every Christian, as I said, has at least one spiritual gift. And some of them is like the gift of hospitality. And some of that is, 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 is manifested in, in, say, like in an usher ministry, which we just commissioned a couple of leaders today. And that is a gift, spiritual gift of hospitality. Others is a gift of administration, a gift of worship, gift of prayer, um, healing, and compassion. Those are just several of the many lists that, that Paul uh, lists throughout his letters in the New Testament. And one thing that is necessary that is stated here that these gifts are given to the people for us to be able to do service for God working together so that the body may grow. If we don't exercise those gifts then the body doesn't grow. And working together is something that is a beautiful thing to see. And we often call working together, call teamwork. And God values teamwork. Now, if we all are honest, a lot of times we would say it's a lot easier to do things by ourselves, right? To work with others on a group project sometimes takes a lot more time to do something. If you had to, to do it by yourself, you could do something a lot faster and probably maybe more peacefully. Because working with others, you have to kind of have a consensus or compromises, agreement. When I uh, play basketball, I've been doing this for whatever, almost over 50 years of playing basketball, which is kind of scary to think. But I know that I'm only successful on the court because other people have helped me. It takes teamwork. Um, when I get to shoot the ball, the only reason I get to shoot the ball is because somebody had to screen for me or somebody has to pass me the ball at the right time. And in sports, we kind of get that. The team sports especially, you're not going to be successful by yourself without the help of your teammates. Everybody has to do their part. Verse 16 says, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This verse tells us about the interdependence of members of the church. That we are all connected like ligaments in the body. That we need each other. Your growth, my growth, our health together is dependent on each other. In, in medical terms, right, if we think about this, if only one part of the body is growing a lot, a lot of times we refer, refer to that as a tumor or a cancer. That's abnormal growth. And then on the flip side, if one part is not growing and is supposed to be growing, we call that stunted growth. 
So the picture here is that we all have to be growing together for having normal growth and to be a healthy growth. If one part's growing too fast, if one part is not even growing, that could be detrimental. Unity is the responsibility of God's people in the church. Unity allows diversity and is expressed in a variety of the functions that are given. Paul emphasized body growth, not self-growth. And each individual contributes to this unified growth as he allows his particular gift to function. Now, as part of the church leadership, some of the things that we are responsible for is to oversee and shepherd your, your growth. And uh, we're working on a plan that will have some intentionality on how this growth is supposed to look like. And we've given it the name Fusion. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time about it today. It's about basically moving people um, that are first-time guests or visitors to becoming fully engaged, devoted members of Christian Layman Church. It's essentially a, a plan to oversee the spiritual journey continuum that we're all at in the spiritual formation process. That whether you are a skeptic moving to a seeker, to a follower, to a leader, to a world changer, all of that has to be monitored, guided, and coached. And that's our intentionality to be able to do that for all of us here. And so uh, some of us on the leadership here will be uh, planning those things and creating uh, programs for that. But a lot of it, essentially the bottom line here is to, to allow us all to have growth, that we all will continue on our maturity scale of becoming closer and closer to God. You know, why does God want us to be unified? Why does God want us to work together as a team? Why is this unity so important? Because he has a plan, I said, right? He has a plan to restore and redeem the world. And he chooses to use us, not just as individuals, but as a body, as a collective, as a community, as a church. Because unity is a beautiful thing to see. Teamwork is a beautiful thing to see. The world often doesn't get to see that. Now, continuing in, just in the sports analogy, when I see teamwork in a sports setting, it is an amazing thing to see. And others do pay attention. When I was coaching uh, my son in basketball, they were like a bunch of eight and nine-year-olds at the time. And uh, I got a lot of flack because uh, I was pretty hard as a coach. Um, and in the sense that I, I expected a lot, but I, I had a, they had a lot of fun. And, and the, the best uh, affirmation of it was that at the end of the season, all the kids and the parents said that was one of the best seasons that they ever had when I was coaching them. And they had a lot of fun. And because we did crazy things, and maybe some things other teams didn't like, but it demonstrated that we worked as a team. And, and one of the plays that I designed was that I noticed that a tip-off, when, when you, you know, jump ball to get the start the game and get the, the game started, I noticed a lot of the kids, especially that age, they're really kind of standing around. They, they don't really know what they're supposed to be doing. So I take advantage of that is that because I had one of the taller players uh, in, in the league, I had him say, you just slap that ball 
down towards our basket, and every I told all our four players that were outside of the circle, you run as fast as you can that way, and, and grab that ball and lay it up. And I would have my best guys, the fastest guys, on closest on the circle, and they wouldn't even be looking the other way. They're actually turned and looking that way. And as soon as the ball goes up, they jump. My player would slap the ball. My players are down there to get the ball laid up. Right off the bat, I have already demonstrated that our team was ready to play. And other teams were kind of intimidated that I would have a play like that because I assumed I would get the ball. But that is a beautiful thing to see. It demonstrates planning, intentionality, but also ability to have teamwork to be able to pull that off because my center had to be able to tip that ball and my runners had to go as fast as they can and make that layup. It doesn't look good if you throw it out of bounds. It doesn't look good if you miss the layup. But it is a beautiful thing to see and that's a demonstration of what teamwork can do and teamwork that will bring attention to what you're doing. And that's what God wants us to do as a church. He doesn't want us to hide behind these walls. He wants us to go into the world and demonstrate to the world that we are something to see, something that is meaningful and attractive. And, and in that process, this morning, I want us to kind of prepare ourselves for that, to understand that we are called to live lives that demand an explanation. And if people are looking at your lives and not asking, and not demanding an explanation of why you do what you do, that something's wrong. Something is not right here. And to help us in the process, I came across this study by Barna. And I think you have a handouts in, in your bulletins. And it's essentially a list of questions. And, and I'm not going to go through all of them for you. You can do this on your own time. It's a study that was div uh, driven by um, David Kinneman, who's the president of Barna, group, it's a research group in conjunction with John Burke. And on one side of the paper that you have, there are these 10 questions that, that examine whether you are Christ-like. There are questions that ask if your actions are like Jesus. I listen to others to learn their story before telling them about my faith. Uh, another question is, in recent years, I have influenced multiple people to consider following Christ. Another question is, I regularly choose to have meals with people with very different faith or morals from me. And then there are questions about attitudes like, uh, that are like Jesus. I see God-given value in every person regardless of their past or present condition. I believe God is for everyone. I see God working in people's lives even when they are not following him. And then on the flip side, there are these 10 questions that address whether your actions and your attitudes are actually more like Pharisees, whether you are actually more self-righteous versus being Christ-like. And some of these questions for self-righteous actions are, I tell others the most important thing in my life is, is following God's rules. I don't talk about my sins or struggles that's between me and God. I try to avoid spending time with people who are openly gay or lesbian. And these statements about self-righteous attitudes, I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do the wrong things. It's not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves. I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws. And that's kind of just some of the examples of these, these statements. 
And if you're in your own time, you can review these and see if you, whether you agree or disagree with these, these statements. And, and at the end of that research that, that Barna did, they found that actually one out of two people actually are more pharisaical than actually more like Jesus. And these are so-called professed Christians that more than half of people actually identify more as being self-righteous than being Christ-like. There's only 14% of the questionnaires actually uh, qualify to be Jesus-like in attitude and action. And actually, if you were to grade yourself out, you would look at this thing. If you scored in agreement with any of the pharisaical statements, there's actually a penalty. That you, you, It's not just a zero. You get a negative. So that's how they, they, they weighted this thing. If, that, if you agreed with the pharisaical, you got penalized. So I think it's a good exercise. It just puts your own self-awareness of where you stand. And, and if you're like the general public, my hope is that you're better than the public uh, that profess that they're a Christian, that you would be better than one out of two that, that say that uh, they're actually pharisaical. We together, as a community, can be a powerful image to the world. And in practical and real ways, I do see that. When we go to Richmond to do the eye screening, we work as a community to do that. It is something that can be a positive uh, effect for Christendom, for uh, God's work. When we go there, it's especially important that we go there not grumpy. We go there... Um, feeling obligated. It's important that we go there cheerfully, willingly. And people are actually watching how we treat one another and how we treat them. And that can make it or break it in God's eyes. Um, I think last year there was a story that, that was an amazing story that I heard from our eye screening that we have all kinds of people coming to the eye screening. And there was one particular gentleman who, who uh, was known by the local community, but none of us really knew who he was. And he's African-American. But he came in and he kind of had a chip on his shoulder, but he wanted to get um, screened and get glasses. And apparently he, he makes it a priority to visit various Christian churches and he goes to various uh, clinics and free screenings and he just does that. And he kind of tests the water. And, and apparently, he had a positive experience. Because one of the people in the community said to one of our leaders and one of the pastors from the other church, do you know who that person is? And oh, we said, no, we don't know. Because uh, we're not part of that community. And, and the person said, do you know that person is one of the most influential persons in, in Richmond? And then they said, who? Who is he? And he said, he's the most powerful drug lord in Richmond. And, you know, he's not a politician, but he's probably one of the more influential people in that community. And that person said that was the best experience that he had ever had from a group of people offering services. He said, other people have always treated him badly. But at our screening and our eye screening, he said that was one of the best experiences he had ever had. And I think on the following day that he had visited, 
he came in a black limo with uh, uh, darkened windows and, and everybody saw that car and he rolled down his window and he just kind of went like this to the, to the volunteers there. So that was kind of cool. But if the impact there essentially is that we as a people can make a positive difference in the world that demonstrates that the world we are different. And at places like the Richmond Ice Screening, we can do that. And we have an opportunity again to do this this summer. And I hear that we do need um, more volunteers and we actually specifically need you to pray that we can get some glasses. Because the usual vendors and the usual uh, groups of people that provide the glasses for have not committed this year. So please pray for that because without glasses, um, the ice screening wouldn't be as effective. Then another example where our church can make a difference is in our generosity. In one of my recent dental uh, newsletters, uh, uh, my state dental association gave away $10,000 to a, a county to help with children's um, dental care. So the amount was $10,000, which was significant for the association to obviously put it on their newsletter, which goes to thousands of dentists in the state of California, let alone in the country. But I kind of chuckle at that because in our church, we have home groups that are willing to give away $12,000, $14,000 so that children can have water to drink or to get them off the streets in countries like the Philippines or Nicaragua. But we don't broadcast like that and for us just a small group of people are willing to give that kind of amount of money versus a huge association with professionals who I do believe make significant amounts of money but for them to say $10,000 is a big thing to broadcast but we have individuals that work together as a home group that can do the same thing and that's a powerful image through generosity and another way, another simple way, that often we don't think about that, that the church together as one demonstrates a significant impact to the world as we come together to help one another, is especially during times when we are grieving. I know it was very meaningful to me when my father passed away for many in the church to come to make visitation at the memorial service. But what is most important to me is not just that it was caring and ministering to me and my family, but to my unbelieving family, for them to see that friends of the church would come and comfort them too at that time of grieving. That image of us as a church can be a powerful one when we work together during those particular moments. In John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples in verses 20 through 23. He prays, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and lo have loved them even as you have loved me. One of my uh, favorite writers and speakers to listen to is Francis Chan and in his book Multiply, and actually some of you have gotten that book Multiply that we've passed out and actually we're thinking of using it for a fall series this year. He writes in that book, Jesus prayed that we would be united. Why? 
so that the world would believe that Jesus was sent by God and so that the world would know that God loves us. Isn't it amazing that Jesus believed that the unity of his church would communicate all of this to the world? So often we assume that having right and logical arguments will be enough. But Jesus said the world will be convinced by our unity. The Apostle Paul says the church is one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. And in this room, I know some of us here may have been hurt by the church, that individuals in the church have harmed you in some way, created some sort of conflict or disagreement. Some of you may be lukewarm or have one foot ready to leave the church. And I just want to take a moment to encourage you, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. Give the church a chance because God wants us to be able to be one, to work together because it is the most powerful image that the world needs to see. When we are conflicted and divided, that's a bad picture for the world to see. I want us to close with seeing this, this little video clip from Francis Chan. So let's see if we can roll that out now. Flies in the face of those who say, I've got my relationship with God. I don't need the church. I don't need, you know, these little gatherings or, you know, I love Jesus. I just hate the church. We can't say that. You're going against everything Jesus asked you to do. God says, I designed you to be together. It's so beautiful when you work together and have one heart, one mind, one soul. And he says, and I'm going to do this. The beautiful thing, Jesus said 2,000 years ago, I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't stand against it. I will create this type of supernatural unity and gathering. And, and so it's not something that we have to force like, okay, let's, let's do the fellowship thing. Let's make it happen. No, God says, I'm going to make it happen. And the question is, is do you want to be a part of it? Do you want to have this sharing, this fellowship that God intended for his church? Or do you want to continue living in isolation? Church can be a beautiful thing. Church as one is a beautiful thing. So I hope that all of us can fall in love again with the church. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you call us to be one. One with Jesus Christ. And as he is the head and we are the body, may we continue to learn unified. Not that we are the same, but that we, in our diversity, can work together as a team so that we may bring glory to you in the world because the world desperately needs hope and it needs something that works. And God, you have told us that you have a plan to redeem the world. And may we trust in that and may we work towards that through the giftedness that you have given to us and the influence that you have given to us so that we as a collective will live lives that demand an explanation. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.